Briefly, briefly comment on some analogues to apocalyptic thinking that were present in early modern Japan. Um, but the punchline of the talk, in a sense, is that the mass mortality did not translate into widespread expressions of apocalyptic thought, uh, much less uh, movements to uh, remake the political or social order. And so I want to conclude on some speculative thoughts on um, why mass mortality failed to connect uh, to what I might have expected going into it innocently, um, namely uh, expressions of apocalyptic panics, um, expressions of a post-apocalyptic vision for how society could be remade. As a starting point, I'd like to take the 80,000 uh, Buddhist temples that exist in Japan today. Each of these temples has at least one sacred statue enshrined at its center, but most contain another object of equal spiritual value, um, and that object is often the first thing that will be rescued in case um, of fire when the priest dives into the flames and, and decides, there's one thing I can take out. It will often be um, a little booklet, sometimes worm-eaten like, like this example, um, in which the names of the dead parishioners uh, across typically something like four centuries uh, are inscribed. Now, the Japanese term for these artifacts is kakucho, which could translate into something like ledger of previous lives. Those of you who know Japanese will know that kako in, in common parlance is just the past, but as a, a technical term in Buddhism, it, it refers to previous lives. I, I tend to translate it as necrology in English. It's an imperfect translation, but it conveys what it is at its most simple level, namely a list of dead people. In a ritual context, it is much more than a list. Um, and one way in which we can illustrate this is that when one priest retires and another priest takes over from him, uh, the kakucho uh, will be handed over in an important part of that uh, ceremony of the changing of the guard, so to speak. Now, for a sacred object, kakucho may look rather plain, rather prepossessing, but let me briefly explain um, how they work. So there are two common formats. I'll just explain one of them, uh, namely the one that's illustrated here. Um, it gives uh, one page or multiple sequential pages to each day in the month. So what you see here is uh, the first day of the month. And then it divides the page into little rectangles and over time fills each of these rectangles with uh, the essential characteristics of the dead parishioners. And those characteristics are, one, a name, but not the name they had in life, but the name that they are given in death, which makes it appear as though they were Buddhist priests. These, these uh, posthumous names, posthumous ordination names, we sometimes call them, um, can be very imposing. And um, the more important and generous the parishioner, the longer they tend to be. The second uh, characteristic of the dead person that is absolutely vital is the precise death date because this will be used to schedule uh, rituals. Uh, rituals that in the course of, depending on the precise tradition, um, 
in the course of, for example, 49 years, will take a dead human soul and transform it into uh, something like a divine ancestral spirit. This kakucho is um, a little unusual in that it also gives us the name of the person in life. Um, in the case of women, often uh, actually the name of the most uh, defining male uh, relationship uh, they had, so the, the, the son or, um, or the husband. And that's already it. Now, um, without the rituals that are scheduled, welcome, um, without the rituals that are scheduled with the aid of the kakocho, um, the souls of the dead would be destined for judgment and um, a series of purging punishments in a series of hells, and then rebirth in a potentially endless cycle. In medieval Japan, it was widely believed that there was almost no way to uh, escape the cycle. Well, there were a couple of uh, ways out, for example, being reborn in a pure land. Um, I can't go into detail. But in the course of the 17th century, a new idea for how to escape the cycle of birth, suffering, death, infernal suffering, rebirth, suffering in this world, death, and so on. Um, a new way of breaking the cycle uh, was developed, and that was the technology of funerary Buddhism, of which the kakocho are a central part. Essentially, Buddhist priests performing rites that uh, allow the dead soul to stay in this world as, as a divine spirit that gradually dissolves itself into the collectivity of the ancestors of a given household. Now, for cultural historians, then, kakocho are the traces of a process that, since 1700, has transformed the souls of more than 300 million people and that focused uh, the imaginations of the future, the imaginations of the past, of roughly as many people in the course of these centuries. But if I wear my hat as a historian of demography, and... Um, Robert very nicely introduced my, my sort of dual interests, my, my, my dual uh, identity as a scholar. Um, then these necrologies are something else besides. They're one of the world's great repositories of mortality time series. And if we're willing, as I strangely was about uh, 10 years ago during uncounted uh, nights, if one is willing to count these individual deaths and um, enter them into a spreadsheet, we can make charts like this that tell us the history of a parish. One aspect of the history of a parish, but an important one, I would say. In this case, a parish at the very northern tip uh, of, of Honshu in a city called, or a town rather, Tosaminato. And when you look at this, I, I think many of you will notice that perhaps one of the main stories we can tell about this chart is that life was punctuated by mortality crises. Some of them truly horrifying, 
I think for a lot of us, World War II is still the go-to event for thinking about something truly horrible. Um, but does somebody, does somebody know how, so the, the worst affected country by, by most uh, definitions was Poland. Does somebody know what proportion of the Polish population died in World War II? In the untold horrors that the Germans and Soviets inflicted on them? It was 17%, so the size of one of these famines and, sorry, I'm sort of jumping the gun on what happened, but uh, the, the size of one of these mortality crises and not the worst of them. Now, the story behind the worst of these mortality crises invariably in this parish is deaths by hunger, which is probably one of the worst ways of dying. It's certainly one of the most drawn out. And I, I don't want to turn this evening that we have together, a part of an evening, um, into disaster pornography or, or sort of a morbid dwelling on suffering that I hope most of us cannot even begin to understand, but perhaps it's worth taking a moment and imagining what it means for a third of a community to starve to death in, in the course of six or seven months. The sights, the sounds, the smells, the memories of terrible things that people saw, terrible things that they did to, to remain among uh, the other two-thirds of survivors. Now, this sort of event has the potential, I should think, to be, uh, and I'm using a word that Barbara Mittler just uh, taught me, an apocalyptic catalyst. If a third of a community dies of starvation, in a, in a, in a sense, one world has come to an end, and there might be a sense that there is a clear after and an opportunity to build a world anew. Um, I have pretty much randomly picked this temple. Uh, it's one of the worst affected places, but really the main reason I picked it is that the time series was particularly long. Um, but when we combine uh, lots of these temples, we can begin to make these maps that give you a sense that Sogeji was not that uh, exceptional. So I'm color coding the severity of the mortality crises here. Um, as you see, there's a lot of spatial variation in a part of this project and in a lecture that some of you heard uh, five years ago. My God, I really need to wrap up this project. Um, I, I dwelled on um, what the spatial variation means. If somebody's interested in uh, delving into it, I'm happy to uh, explore it in the Q&A, but today my focus will lie elsewhere. Um, just to give you a sense that, again, it's, it's not just uh, this terrible crisis of 1783, 1784, but also, uh, well, there are up to eight others that we could pick, especially bad, 1834. And here a crisis that for Sogeji was only mid-sized, but in other parts uh, of Japan emptied entire landscapes, especially um, on this peninsula here near what is now uh, Sendai. Now, 
this is the the scale of this, uh, this the scale of death that is captured uh, by these ritual objects um, can also be seen in some um, other sources of evidence, uh, including those that were created by um, the secular authorities. So this map I made based on a report that tried to capture everybody who had starved to death. So this is different from what I just showed you, which were, which were all the deaths here. The, questions they, the question they ask is just how many people starved to death in this particular uh, famine of 1755 for a domain, uh, one of the larger so feudal entities uh, of Tokugawa, Japan. And this is the map that results. And you know, in this region, 87.3%. I wondered, could it be a typo? But it, it is consistent with the population figures we have for the before and for the after. So again, um, one would think that it could be an apocalyptic catalyst. I should just say one more thing about the spatial pattern of uh, these mortality crises. Um, and that is that Japan contained multitudes in this period. It was a, a state that had strange parallels to the Holy Roman Empire um, in that it had one or arguably two overlords, uh, but also contained hundreds of autonomous units, um, you know, with figures whom we could very crudely compare to a prince-elector of the Palatinate. Um, and, and the land dotted with castles, uh, some of them very, very grand. Um, and within this politically fragmented realm, there were regions like the core around some of the great cities of the early modern world, Osaka, Kyoto, and especially Edo, that were as well protected from famine as any part of the world at the time. So if you were in Edo, you were about as unlikely to die of hunger as you would be in um, London or, or Danzig, a center of the grain trade. But if you were in the north, the, the regions that I've um, painted in red, if you were realistic about your likely cause of death, your guess should have been starvation. Right? Just in the way that my, I mean, if the world doesn't change, I will probably die of heart disease or, or cancer. Um, if in the 1750s, somebody in Hirosaki or Morioka was realistic about their future, they should have said, probably I'll well, there's a good chance I will die of starvation. And that made the north of Japan one of the most famine-prone uh, parts of the early modern world, um, up there with parts of northern India, with Finland, uh, with Ireland, and, and a number of other unfortunate peripheral parts of the early modern global economy. Now, many, many stories can be told about the causes of frequent starvation. One is that uh, the Japanese, for peculiar reasons, fetishized rice and grew it at what was the northernmost um, place where anybody grew rice in the early modern period. I couldn't find a good map for the early modern period. So what you see there is for 2000 when new rice trains had, had developed. But you know, growing rice was, was something fairly risky to do uh, so far north. We can also tell the story of the political fragmentation of, of Japan. If you're interested in how that connects, ask me in the Q&A. Uh, 
But if we look at the timing of uh, these mortality crises, another factor uh, comes into view, and that factor are volcanic winters. So I imagine that um, many among you do not need to be told by me what a volcanic winter is, but, but maybe, there are few, maybe there are a few among you who uh, are, are not quite sure, so I, I should take a moment, I think, to explain what a volcanic winter is. Um, I'll return to the slide in a moment. So volcanic winters in most centuries happen about five times, six times, seven times. Uh, we live in an unusually long interval between volcanic winters. The last one was, does anybody know? Pinatubo in uh, 1991 and then the cooling effects uh, well into 1992, which was very lucky for atmospheric science because NASA had uh, excellent instruments in orbit at that point and the scientists could really figure out uh, what happens in a a volcanic winter and give us deep insight into events that punctuate much of human history. Okay, so the way it works um, requires the following ordinarily. You need a highly explosive volcano so that um, its tephra uh, reaches the stratosphere, tephra and ash. Um, if the ash uh, remains in the troposphere, it won't affect the climate very much because the troposphere, as the name suggests, is the place where weather happens, and so uh, the ash will just be rained out within um, a number of weeks. But the stratosphere doesn't have weather, and so if you get sulfate particles, which are very bright, highly reflective, uh, into that high layer of the atmosphere, they will only drop out very, very gradually as the result of gravity. Um, they might remain there. Well, we should think of it in terms of um, half times, but for about a year, a year and a half, the effects of reflecting sunlight back into outer space, um, generally cooling the, the hemisphere on which the eruption happened, but um, the climate being a complex system, uh, causing all sorts of disruptions, uh, droughts in some places, higher temperatures in others, um, extreme rainfall uh, in, in, in yet others. The second characteristic uh, that a volcanic eruption needs to cause a volcanic winter is that it's very sulfur-rich because, again, um, the chemical that causes uh, volcanic winters is sulfates. Um, so without, without sulfur, you're not going to get these highly reflective particles in the atmosphere. And I imagine many of you will know that um, as we figure out what to do about our warming planet, one of the most prominent geoengineering um, proposals is to do with airplanes or cannons or giant hoses uh, what volcanoes did in the past and may yet again do in the future, namely pump sulfates into uh, the stratosphere to cool the climate. So this is a field of on ongoing inquiry. Uh, one way we figure out that a volcanic winter really happened is that we look at ice cores from Greenland and Antarctica and see uh, whether there are sulfur signatures. I have uh, two different colors here for cases that are slam dunks and, and others where reasonable people can disagree. And I'm sorry, this is a complicated chart. 
Um, not a very pretty one. I have to do better than this. But its basic message is meant to be this. One, Japan had numerous famines in the early modern period. And two, most or all of these famines can be connected to a volcanic winter. Again, volcanic winters are hemispheric or even global events. These ash veils, these sulfate veils, uh, travel very quickly um, around the globe. So it doesn't really matter that much. Well, it, it doesn't matter what the longitude of the volcano is. The latitude matters a little bit, um, but, but shan't uh, detain us here. Now, some of these volcanoes, so Japan contains um, one-sixth of the world's volcanoes, an extraordinary fact if you consider how tiny Japan is. But most of these volcanoes were not in Japan, and none of them was actually in the heavily populated parts of Japan. So for the people who suffered these sudden cooling events, they could seem to come out of nowhere. And I think it's the sort of situation that might encourage people to engage in apocalyptic ideation, because there's no obvious explanation um, well, I don't know. It, it, could get, it could go either way, but if the weather all of a sudden becomes hostile uh, to agriculture without forewarning, without explanation, um, to my mind, the natural thing would be to start and wonder what, what is happening to the world. And in fact, in other parts of the world, this is what, uh, this is what happened. I think the most famous volcanic winter, if you've heard of one volcanic winter, my bet is most of you have heard of this one. It's actually called a summer, more, more commonly in, in our part of the world. The year without a summer, 1816, it was the result of one of the uh, largest eruptions in um, recorded history. A mountain in what was then the Dutch East Indies and is now uh, Indonesia, that was the size of Mount Fuji, so more than 3,000 meters tall, the sort of mountain that a sailor saw long before the rest of the island came into view, exploded and turned into this giant caldera at the bottom of the slide. The results were manifold, but um, among them at its bicentennial was a publishing rush uh, that has given us these and, and other books. Um, in Japan, by the way, this volcanic winter barely registered uh, and just reminds us that the climate, the global climate system, um, is complex and, and drawing of simplistic cause and effect uh, conclusions can lead us astray. In at least parts of Europe, uh, the year without a summer caused millenarian panics. Um, one that has become famous uh, was centered on northern Italy. There was a prophecy that on, I think it was the 18th of July, 1816, the world would end. And Lord Byron, along with the Shelleys, was very famously holed up in Switzerland that summer. They were trying to escape uh, the darkness and cold and rain of Britain, but traded it for the darkness and cold and rain and snow of Switzerland and wrote immortal works of literature, including Frankenstein, in their mountain retreat. But Lord Byron um, was inspired by this millenarian panic uh, in northern Italy 
to write what to my mind is one of the great apocalyptic poems of all time, Darkness, um, which begins with these immortal lines, I had a dream which was not all a dream, the bright sun was extinguished, and the stars did wander darkling in the eternal space, rayless and pathless, and the icy earth swung blind and blackening in the moonless air, morn came and went and came and brought no day. And then he tells the story of how humans react and essentially uh, they burn everything so that they have a last glimmer of light and um, in the end, the world is silent. Uh, no humans, no tides, no winds, just darkness. Now, I just mentioned that in the many histories of uh, the year without a summer, the Tambora aftermath, um, Japan is at best a footnote because nothing very impressive happened in Japan in 1816. Um, but in many other volcanic winters, Japan is part of a global story of disruption and human suffering. And one example uh, is the combined results of the eruptions of Hekla, uh, Komagatake and arguably some other volcanoes um, of lesser magnitude that made uh, the years, especially 1695 and uh, 1696, uh, a particularly unpleasant time to be alive. And you may, you may remember that at uh, the temple that I showed you, 25% of the population died in that winter. It's a particularly poignant story because this was also a time when in the military capital of Shogun, sorry, in the military capital of, of the Shogun Edo, um, a curious visionary, arguably, by the name of Tokugawa Tsunayoshi ruled, who decided that the protections of the human society should also be extended to various animals. And he rounded up the stray dogs of his city, 100,000 of them, and built a special suburb for them where they were maintained at state expense, complete with a college of veterinary doctors, um, many cartloads of rice, um, barrels of miso paste year upon year. And that suburb, this canine suburb, was opened in 1695, just as at the northern tip of the realm, um, tens of thousands of human beings starved to death. And again, I, I don't think part of what we can accomplish today is to understand what mortality on the scale means, but I want to give you just a couple of scenes to perhaps be begin to visualize it. Um, not far from Sogeji, we have a, we, we have a record um, where locals maintained uh, wares, so little traps for, for salmon and other anadromous fish. But instead of fish, they were clogged with the corpses of children that uh, washed there from upstream. Um, and the record says that every morning they removed between 30 and 70 corpses of children. 
And instead of burying them, they would just uh, loosen them and then let them wash out to sea. Or in Hirosaki, the castle that ruled uh, the little town where this temple was located, um, there was a priest who began to pay beggars to collect, in, in the aftermath of the famine when things were stabilizing again, he paid them to collect the bones of people who had died by the roadside or had been abandoned um, on the side of a river. And he gathered, this one priest gathered the bones of 819 people that way. I wonder if he ran out of money. That, um, but Well, it was for a good cause. I mean, doubly good cause, right? He could take care of the souls of the dead, but also the beggars uh, had some income. Now, I'm tempted to connect um, the story of Japan's volcanic winters with a place we're in, the city of Heidelberg. Um, and one of the worst volcanic winters of the early modern period began in this place, this very scenic place, the Lucky Fisher in Iceland, which erupted with immense amount of sulfur in 1783. Uh, caused horrors in many parts of the world. But does anybody know what it did to Heidelberg? Anyone? It ruined our bridge. <laughs> and the way this happened was that the winter was terribly cold, um, but also very wet, and so an unusual amount of snow fell. Um, all around this region, in, in much of Germany, actually. Um, then there were short uh, thaw thawing periods uh, that weren't long enough for the water to really flow very far, but enough for the snow to turn into ice and to gather in the rivers. And then when the final thaw at long last began in late February, the Neckar, along with other rivers in Germany, um, looked more like something out of the Arctic Ocean, so a place with ice floats. And these ice floats just knocked down bridges um, and, and houses, as you can see. And next time you walk across um, the old bridge, you can read uh, the inscription there, and you will see that it was only rebuilt in the form that we know and I think love today in 1788. And of course, the Heidelberg story is by far the most important, but it happened elsewhere too. So uh, this news sheet uh, tells you what happened in Cologne and perhaps also gives you a sense of the drama that, that Heidelberg experienced. So this is, I think, meant to be water in its liquid state. And here, uh, the ice floats that, that, ravage, uh, that ravage the city. One last item of local history. In Speyer in that winter, the Rhine was frozen. Um, food prices were very high. It was very cold, so firewood was also in short supply. And the city um, held a special event there to collect uh, money for the poor on the frozen Rhine. And, and of course, the Rhine doesn't freeze very often, so hopefully it impresses you with uh, how cold this winter was. Now, Germany, for all that, these were some of the worst floods um, ever experienced uh, in, in Germany and Central Europe, was among the luckier parts of the world in Japan. The year 1784 was a time of devastating famine, arguably the single worst famine. Um, 
certainly in, in the 18th century, possibly uh, in the entire early modern period. Now, I've begun to give you some illustrations of what famine meant in the places that were hit with, with its full terror, but perhaps to illustrate what it meant for an average place, um, we should travel uh, to this part of Japan called Fukui Prefecture today, Echizen province at the time. And here's a close-up. So this is a fairly small place. I've tried to give you a rough indication uh, of, of the spatial relationships. And we're going to the small domain. Domain is the word that uh, Japan historians speaking English use for the, the feudal territories. The small domain of Katsuyama, and specifically a village called Ryudani. And as you can see, um, Ryudani is quite close to the castle town. Uh, Google Maps tells me that today it would take about 50 minutes to walk there. Um, delightfully, it's right next to what is probably the most famous dinosaur museum in Japan, which was built into this mountain uh, later on. Well, such delights lay far in the future in 1784. Um, so this is a place surrounded by mountains. It's already in a part of Japan that every winter is choked by snow. It's not very cold, but it has some of the highest snowfalls anywhere on Earth, you know, to the point that major roads have these sprinkler systems built in because clearing the snow by hand would be so much work, and so it's sprinkled away. Um, it also means that if you're not careful, you're not only cold, but also have miserably wet feet all winter. Um, and 1783-1784, of course, was a particularly harsh uh, winter. The crop failed. Um, and by the fall of 1783, it was clear to the villagers of Ryurani that the next year was going to be tough. It wasn't clear how they would be able to eat, how they would be able to plant. Um, and they still owed a large part of the harvest as tax tribute uh, to their samurai overlords in the castle town of Katsuyama. And so they sent them a petition explaining their dire situation and asking them for tax relief. There was, the domain responded by dispatching a detachment of samurai that filed out of the castle town. Um, and they spent two days examining and carefully recording the situation in the village. During this time, the villagers had to uh, ply them with tea, which was a fancy um, drink at the time, and with sweets. And just during those two days, the cost of hosting them amounted to 34% of the tax relief that the village ultimately obtained. In fact, it was more than that because after the visit, uh, the leaders of the village went to the castle town, thanked the samurai that they had taken the trouble of hearing their plea and examining their local conditions and gave them gifts and more food. Um, at the same time, 65 individuals um, in this village of about 350 were already listed as being at risk of starvation. Um, the officials came back to investigate these individual claims, decided that in 27 of these cases, the villagers really had exaggerated and um, people would be fine. 
And then, based on this report, Katsuyama Domain announced that the remaining 38 would receive precisely 72.96 silver momme. Um, or actually, not quite, because they deducted 10.06 momme for the various expenses of the inspectors. So that in the end, only 1.6 momme per starving person remained. That was enough for a little less than 10 liters of millet, uh, Hilse in German, um, a grain that is not very dense. Uh, calorically. Now, three months earlier, the samurai inspectors had each eaten their way through 40 momme worth of food during the two-day inspection. So we can calculate from this that the samurai thought that on a good day's work, a samurai needed to eat more in a single day of ambling across fields than a, a starving farmer needed uh, Then, sorry, then 12 farming, starving farmers needed to make it through a hungry season. That is not to say that the domain didn't do anything for the people of Ryudani. Because Japan was full of malnourished people by early uh, 1748, um, an epidemic spread. It seems to have been an, a respiratory epidemic. We don't exactly know, or at least I don't exactly know what it was. Influenza is a strong possibility. And so the domain sent a wad of amulets to Ryudani. The good people of Ryudani posted the amulets at the entrances to the village as if to ward off um, danger from the rest of the world. But as they huddled behind this protection, um, they couldn't entirely keep out the rest of the world. Ryudani was among the more fortunate places in this part of the world. Um, I've marked another place, the village of Ushikubi, which is deep in the mountains. Um, and as soon as, the, as soon as the snows of 1784 thawed and made it possible to travel on the roads again, many of the locals uh, tried to escape, tried to uh, hold on to life by, by looking for food elsewhere. When they arrived in Yudani, they would be turned away, they would be sent back to the place they came from where no food at all remained. Now one day in um, the late spring, the people of Yudani found a 50-year-old man behind a local shrine. He'd somehow gotten past the village guards, but he was dead, one of the victims of starvation. Next to him crouched a little boy. The little boy was uh, so far gone, probably both mentally and physically, that all they could get out of him was that he came from the village of Ushikubi. We know about this because um, the people of Ryudani sent a letter to the castle town, asked for advice on what to do with the boy. The castle town told them, you have to take care of him locally. They put him in a little guard hut. We don't know whether they took very good care of him, but we do know that 12 days later, he was dead as well. And they opened the grave of the father to reunite the father and the son. This sounds like a lot of work, but actually the grave they had dug was all of nine centimeters deep. And I'm not quite sure what to make of this. It might be that they had become so weak that uh, they themselves um, just at the bare minimum to, to sprinkle some, some earth um, over the dead body. Okay, so this is what an average village uh, experience might, might be like in this terrible uh, 
winter and spring of 1783-1784. Uh, it's high time I, I get into the penultimate part of this lecture, namely the question of apocalypse. So I think it's plausible to say we have these powerful potential apocalyptic catalysts, but we do not have much in the way of an apocalyptic reaction. Now, it's very dangerous to claim an absence. It's about as dangerous as positing a superlative when all it takes is one of you pulling out one counterexample to deflate my statement. And these counterexamples exist. There are some thinkers in Japan that articulated um, apocalyptic notions. But I'm still more impressed with the general absence of apocalyptic claims in this context. And it is especially impressive because Japan had a rich inheritance of apocalyptic discourses. Um, we find them in uh, Buddhist cosmology. Uh, for example, the very widespread belief that human history since the birth of the historical Buddha, the, the Shakyamuni, um, could be divided into three stages. The first stage was the age of the flourishing dharma, the, the age in which people could truly follow Buddhist teachings and, and implement them. Depending on the tradition that lasted for 500 or for 1,000 years, there followed an age of the declining dharma where there were still some possibilities, but the trend was in an unhappy direction. And finally, there came the age of the degenerate dharma. And in medieval Japan, people worked out a precise date for this, and it was the year 1052 CE. And my impression is that this was, there was a social consensus that in 1052, of course, they didn't use that term, um, but in the year that corresponds to our year 1052, um, the age of the de degenerate dharma, an age that would last 10,000 years, would begin. And in that age, uh, people could no longer reach enlightenment, for example, um, through their own efforts. And one thing I find fascinating about the age of the declining dharma is that it's a rare example of a pre-modern society showing us evidence of thinking way ahead into the future. Um, and they did this by burying sutras, the sacred texts of Buddhism. They assumed that in this degenerate age that uh, had just dawned, the teachings of Buddhism sooner or later would be lost. But they wanted to preserve them for a distant future. Um, when the conditions were better again, they hoped people would find these buried sutras and be able to learn from them again. And in various places, well, the archaeologists have kind of thwarted their uh, their, their designs, unearthed them, and stuck them into museums as here. Another Buddhist uh, concept that strikes me as an analog to apocalyptic thought in the West is the figure of the Maitreya in my poorly pronounced Sanskrit, or Miroku in Japanese, the Buddha of the future, the Buddha that will come at the end of this degenerate age of 10,000 years and um, usher in a new age in which the, the Buddhist Dharma can flourish. And Miroku Maitreya is a very common figure in Mahayana Buddhism and, and, and throughout Japan. There must be thousands and thousands of statues to which people uh, prayed during the Tokugawa period. I could give you more examples um, of Buddhism, but I want to 
come to a close within a couple of minutes. So let me just note that it wasn't just the Buddhist tradition that had at least rough analogs to Western apocalyptic thought, but even Confucianism, that uh, fairly straight-laced ideology, has examples of people um, talking about secular changes. Kumazawa Banzan, um, I recently discovered a beautiful uh, new article by James McMullen um, about Kumazawa Banzan's ecological thought. Um, Kumazawa Banzan, who lived in the 17th century, uh, believed that the turn of human beings toward refinement, uh, love of luxury, uh, social sophistication, and abandonment of simplicity was connected through the forces of chi, that, that sort of unseen force, um, to the climate, and it would make the climate warmer and uh, spread insects that, that would cause trouble, um, and so on and so forth. But he also believed that things could be turned around um, with the appearance of a Confucian, what we might call a Confucian messiah, a superior man of the future, an enlightened king who would return the world um, to the stage of its cycle that was regenerative, that went in a positive direction. Now, if you think back to the volcanic winters and the famines that ensued in many places, the authorities often flagrantly fail to protect the lives of their subjects. You know, the case of the village of Rudani, I hope, impressed you with this fact. Even in a case where they pretended to do something, it was fairly half-hearted. And in other cases, they, they failed in much more impressive ways. Of course, there are also examples where they succeeded uh, to their satisfaction and the satisfaction of the subjects. But there should have been so many examples of policy failure um, that one would expect people to rise up, people to imagine a very different world. But in fact, the famines saw rather little violence to the extent that we read of violence. It takes the form of um, petty crime, like uh, robberies or, or thefts of food. Um, and organized political violence, the only cases that I've come across, target intermediate figures. They target rice merchants. They target uh, wealthy locals who are considered not generous enough, um, who are considered hoarders. Now, the interesting ways in which the domains probably made the problem much worse. Uh, one of the ways they did that was by responding to calls for export bans, fragmenting the market in food at the time when it was most needed. One way to illustrate that is a trope that we see time and again in the sources, namely that people who have fortunes in precious things like gold coins still starve to death. So this is a tale retold many times, probably based on an actual historical event. It's placed precisely in time and space of a man, of a corpse, an emaciated corpse found by the roadside, the people who discover him, um, you know, which includes a Buddhist priest, that's the, the figure with the rosary. Um, after a moment notice that he has this bag and it's full of gold coins. A hundred gold coins, an immense fortune. You could have employed a servant for a lifetime with that money. 
but nobody would sell him food. This too could have been taken as a sign that there was something profoundly wrong with the system. Um, it could have sparked ideas for how to do things differently, but with minor exceptions, and these are minor exceptions that wrote manuscripts that um, were rediscovered in the 20th century, but do not seem to have made much of a splash in their own time. Um, people did not question the system. They hunkered down, and when the famine passed, they resumed their work. There were policy changes. We can see a certain um, increase in the sense that the state is supposed to protect citizens. We see, for example, the spread of child-rearing subsidies in the aftermath of the 1780s famine. But on the whole, you know, this isn't enough to... to uh, think of it in apocalyptic terms. And I want to close on two thoughts that are very speculative, but I think this is a great group to speculate with. Um, so two ideas for how we could explain this. And I should maybe preface it by saying that explaining something that happened is already hard enough. And you know, often we think we have an explanation, but we don't have a good methodology to really check whether it's true or not. Explaining something that didn't happen even harder. Um, so I offer this in a spirit of exploration and I hope with, with humility. Um, it might be nonsense, but maybe it's interesting nonsense. So the first idea is that Tokugawa Japan might have been a post-apocalyptic society. And if I had not been invited to give this talk, that thought would have never occurred to me. But let me explain, and especially those who think a lot about Japanese history, I suspect are now following your brows. This is not the way we usually talk about Tokugawa Japan, but Tokugawa Japan, conventionally we think of it as beginning in 1600, although slightly different definitions also exist, followed onto nearly a century and a half of civil war. Um, a century and a half in which there was not a single year without a battle being fought on Japanese soil. Um, 150 years in which ancient sacred institutions uh, faded away in some um, high-profile cases were desecrated and burned, um, a time in which ancient central authority crumbled and local warlords in much of the country took the reins of power. And from this age of war of upheaval, of chaos, of violence, um, there emerged a sequence of three great warlords, uh, Oda Nobunaga, Toyotomi Hideyoshi, and finally Tokugawa Ieyasu, who was roughly the same age as them, but had a longer and luckier life. And in 1615, when the son of a minor warlord who uh, has fought some of the great battles anywhere on earth, during this period. In 1615, when he is in his early 70s, he identifies the last remaining major threat to the security of his dynasty. And that threat is the son of his former master, Toyotomi Hideyoshi. That son resides in the greatest castle in the land, in the city of Osaka. And Ieyasu orchestrates two great sieges in uh, in sequence. The larger of them involves more than 300,000 soldiers on both sides, an almost unparalleled number for the time. You know, this is a time when um, an army of 30,000 is, is very impressive uh, 
in European theaters of wars. He burns down the castle. Uh, he does away with his rival. The news travels all the way uh, to Europe. And then a year later, he dies. And it's plausible that when he died, he thought that he had pretty much done what he could to put an end to the age of war. Um, in this life of his that was stained with dust and blood, he had built a new durable order. Of course, this is more obvious retrospectively than it need have been to him. But if he thought that, he was indeed right. Again, look at this chart. The blood-soaked years are followed by the gentle, serene, green years. Uh, Japan, a great exception globally. Um, nearly 250 years, nearly uninterrupted um, by anything that we could uh, call a war. Um, and the people of Tokugawa, Japan, did not take peace for granted. They talked of their own time as the great peace. And if you call your time the great peace, I think it's implicit that it is something special. I think it's implicit that it follows on an age that was not a great peace. And so in that sense, I think we could argue that the figure of Tokugawa Ieyasu, who, by the way, immediately after his death becomes the center of a state cult that enshrines him as uh, the Toshogu Daigongen, the great avatar that shines um, from the east. Um, Tokugawa Ieyasu is arguably seen as this messianic figure that stands at the moment of apocalypse and post-apocalypse. Uh, the concept of the great avatar that shines in the East, by the way, is the idea that Tokugawa Ieyasu was a Buddha that took on the shape not of a human being, but of a Shinto god. And through his mighty works, uh, bestowed countless benefits onto the world, but who would remain with his realm looking out um, from the innermost uh, sanctum of his shrine uh, across his realm and secure it across the generations. Okay, so this is possibility one, and you'll be glad to know that we're about two minutes away from my conclusion. Um, the second possibility has to do with the way that the people of Tokugawa, Japan, treated the dead. Um, I opened the lecture by talking about funerary Buddhism and how it persuaded people that the souls of the dead could become serene ancestral deities that remained attached to the household, remained present in a way. But even for the dead whose households had disappeared in a famine, people had a treatment. And that consisted of erecting these big, sometimes small, well, in this case, it's big stones that punctuated the landscape. Um, and whose number greatly increased in the aftermath of famines. So all these uh, examples that I'm showing you are memorial stones for people who died in famines. Memorial doesn't actually quite capture it because they have a dual purpose. One purpose is to remind people of what happened, um, teach them the lessons, Remember them not to take full bellies for granted. Um, remind them to, to prepare uh, for another crop failure or a sequence of crop failures. But the other purpose is perhaps a little bit more unexpected, and it relies on the idea that the living can channel karmic merit to the dead. So they can help the dead even after the dead have passed away. And for some reason, people persuaded themselves that erecting these stone markers 
did this trick. I'm fascinated by the convergent evolution with our own culture of memorializing things. Um, in this country, for at least a century, uh, people have also dealt with trauma by erecting big stones and inscribing things on them. If you think, for example, of the memorials of uh, the dead of World War I, that every little, little town in Germany and really across uh, all the combatants has. And it makes me think that, well, some of you may have better ideas, but I wonder if part of what is going on there psychologically is that if you carve trauma in stone, if you carve the memory of the dead in stone, you can unload it to some extent. You know that they're permanently remembered. You know that there's a place you can go to to think about them. But maybe this means that you don't have to think about them all the time. I do this with my lectures. Usually after a lecture, I write down everything that went horribly wrong. And then I don't have to obsess about it anymore. Then I can uh, move on to other things. And I suspect that doing something with these stones could have a similar purpose. Through the psychological mechanism, but I think also by persuading people that the dead were taken care of, that the victims of these potentially apocalyptic events were not beyond um, salvation, there was less of a rupture. And thanks to the kakocho, sorry, thanks to the necrologies, the dead were also still present. So again, instead of an apocalyptic rupture, people could think of what had happened as a continuous story. And so we end on the necrologies, which might... Which, which open this inquiry, which allow us to reconstruct the scale and geography of mass starvation in the first place and invite us to ponder its meaning. Thank you very much, and I'm sorry that this has gone, gone on for a rather long time. <laughs> <laughs>